was, was going to start with a funny exercise, but I might just uh, come back to it. Just uh, as we're aware of the presence of God, I'm just going to read his word to us uh, in First Timothy uh, chapter 6. Uh, verses uh, 6 to 10. True religion with contentment is great wealth. After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world, and we certainly can't carry anything with us when we die. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, it's a little test to see how normal you are. Do you think you're normal? No one's normal. Oh, no one's normal. All right. Uh, put up your hand if you'd eat a worm for $300. Put up your hand if you need a worm for $300. Yeah. All right. Well, you're not normal because seemingly, according to my sources of a book by the name of Lady Bernice Canner, uh, who wrote a book, Are You Normal About Money? 21% would eat a worm for $300, so therefore you're not normal. Put up your hand if you need a worm for $1,000. Uh, all right. uh, no, still not normal. 26% said they'd eat a worm for $1,000. All right, I'll try again. What if I offered you $10,000 to shave your head? Oh, you put your hand without even saying. <laughs> you didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> $10,000 to shave your head. Oh, it's getting better. Uh, well, 59% said. So you're not normal at all, really, according to that. Um, there's another book written by um, a couple of guys, The Day America Told the Truth. Americans were asked, what were you willing to do for $10 million? $10 million. Two-thirds of Americans polled agreed to at least one, some to more than one of these examples. 25% said they'd abandon their entire family for $10 million. 25% said they'd abandon their church. 23% said they'd become prostitutes for a week. 16% said they'd give up American citizenship. 16% would leave their spouse. 10% would withhold testimony to let a murderer go free. 7% said they'd kill a stranger. 3% said they'd put up their children for adoption for $10 million. James Patterson and Peter Kim, the day America told the truth. Money is fascinating stuff. In an article called The Energy of Money, Maria Nemth writes this, Money is an uncomfortable subject for most of us. Many people would rather talk about their sex lives than about their bank balance. We love money and we hate it. We can't live with it, we can't live without it. Money can be a source of great joy and creativity, or it can bring frustration and misery, depending on our relationship with it. We bring all these doubts and fears, hopes and expectations with us every time we deal with money. Not just when we visit a financial planner or a loan officer, but every area in every area of our lives. Money touches almost every aspect of living, work, leisure time, creative activities, home and family, and spiritual pursuits. Everything we do and dream of is affected by our relationship with this powerful form of energy. The book was called The Energy of Money. 
Whether your dream is to travel around the world, pay for a house, establish a food bank, buy a Corvette, get out from under a mountain of debt, or take a year off to write a novel, that vision is intertwined with the possibilities and pitfalls bound up in the energy of money. Welcome to this new series called Getting Our Finances, uh, Sorting Out Our Finances. Uh, so the next three weeks we're going to look at this area of finances. Maybe for you, you know your finances are a bit of a mess at the moment. The old Christmas spending is starting to show up on the credit card and it's not looking pretty. Maybe finance is a source of tension in your home. It's the single biggest cause of relationship breakdown is finances. 64% of all couples argue over money. Interestingly, the whole struggle with money is not just for those on low income. People that earn lots of money uh, and are smart and educated uh, struggle with money. And as we begin this series, I just want to encourage you that the Bible has some quite profound and simple wisdom when it comes to the issue of money. Some of you might be sitting there and you're a bit cynical and you think, what a lousy way to start the year preaching about money. Um, the third biggest reason, according to the um, Church Growth Institute, the third biggest reason why people don't go to church is because they think the church is after uh, their money and uh, they're going to guilt trip. So some of you might be sitting there cynically thinking about this. I want to make a couple of comments about that. First of all, um, we came very close to making our budget last year. Secondly, the giving in January was um, uh, quite healthy. And uh, I promise I won't go on to you about money every week. I've been here two years. I've not preached to you about money before. But the reality is that money is so central to our lives, if I don't preach about it, I'm doing a disservice. Now, it's never easy for pastors to talk about money because the reality is that your giving pays uh, for my salary, and uh, that puts uh, me in a difficult position. Uh, it could appear to be one of self-interest. Uh, I can't avoid that conflict, uh, except to say that uh, since I've been here, and will continue to try and do everything I can to make the church's finances as transparent as possible. So you can ask any question about the church's finance, and uh, we will tell you. If you want to know how much we spend on toilet paper, uh, I can tell you that, not on the top of my head, um, obviously, but we'll tell you anything you want to know about how we spend money uh, in this church. You might be sitting there and thinking, finances are private, it's my business, no one else's. My response to that is that Jesus spoke an awful lot about money. In fact, 15% of all he said uh, related in some way to money. You can't separate out money from spirituality. You can't have a box over here that's got Jesus and spirituality in it and a box over here that's got money in it. Uh, you can't do that. So to be faithful to the Bible, finances have to be on the agenda. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at some issues around money. Today I want to explore three uh, sort of principles uh, from one passage, the passage we just read uh, in 1 Timothy. Timothy is... Uh, so Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers and their motivations. But then he makes, uh, he gives the scripture, uh, these verses around money. True religion with contentment is great wealth. After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world, and we certainly can't carry anything with us when we die. The first thing we need to understand about money, the first principle, is this big picture 
that Paul outlines here. It's a bit like the man who approached God and said, God, uh, up in heaven, how much time is a million years? God said, well, in heaven, a million years is like a second in heaven. Oh, said the man. Up in heaven, he said, how much is a million dollars? Oh, said God, a million dollars in heaven is like 10 cents on earth. Great, said the man. Give me 10 cents. God said, all right, you'll just have to wait a second. Sometimes we can be so focused on money that we lose sight of the bigger picture because we're too close to the issue of money. We've got bills to pay, the dentist bill, and the car's broken down, and we're just focused on the real and the immediate and the urgent. But the Bible continually calls us to the big picture. That's what Paul is, is doing here with Timothy, saying, look, we come into the world with nothing, and we will leave with nothing. This is God's world. When we die, the world will still be there. Before we were born, the world was still there. The things we accumulate, they're not ours. It's God's world. They'll be passed on to someone else when we die. All that we have is simply on loan from God. Some of you uh, go on camping trips. When you go on a camping trip, you, well, this is a debatable statement, but you don't take much with you. Well, you take less than all you've got. <laughs> all right, why do you do that? Why? Because it's only a short time. All right, so it's temporary. So you don't take everything. I know it might feel like otherwise, but you don't take everything with you. Why? Because it's only temporary. The Bible is reminding, Paul is reminding us here that we're on earth for a very short time. Everything we've slaved for, we will leave. On our deathbed, we will not be focused on what our share state of our share portfolio. You know, finances and wanting stuff can consume us, but in the big picture, they're of little eternal significance. I remember when I was um, just first a pastor and I, I went and visited someone uh, in a rest home in Calvary. And uh, they'd, had, they'd got sick and they'd had to sell everything and all they had uh, now had to fit in one little room. If you've been to Calvary Hospital, the rooms are quite small. So there was a bed, there was a little um, duchess sort of thing, and there was one little um, cabinet. And it struck me because um, at the time we'd just bought our first house. And because uh, it's sort of that stage of life, really, where, you know, and you've got kids and you've got stuff everywhere, and, uh, and you... All this woman's life was now, uh, in the last days of her life, was in this little room. Uh, it was a very interesting perspective to think on. The second principle that I think these verses talk about in verse 9 is the debt trap. And you might say it doesn't mention debt. There's no mention of debt. Um, but it says that people who long to be rich fall into temptation are trapped by many harmful desires. And debt is one way we can do that. We can do a lot of things for money. I read a story the other day in Germany about this guy who um, was desperate for some money, so he got his mate to hold his hand down and he chopped two of his fingers off with a chainsaw. And uh, that went quite well. And uh, so two less fingers and the insurance company, two insurance companies paid out. 
that all went well until one of the guys was down at the pub bragging about how much money they'd got out of the scheme. And uh, so they both got put in jail. Anyway, um, that's not nothing to do with debt, really. Um, but not much. Uh, debt. Uh, you know, debt kills us. Um, Two-thirds of New Zealanders uh, don't, on their credit card, don't pay um, their monthly balance. So uh, they're paying, on average, around 19% interest. A few years ago, I couldn't find up to date figures, but a few years ago, New Zealand was at the bottom of the OECD in terms of their household debt uh, to income ratio because uh, we put it on the credit card. It's so easy. The ads on TV uh, continually bombard us. Interest-free. Get it now. No payments for 12 months. The Bible warns us about debt. It doesn't say never go into debt, but it simply warns us of the consequences of debt. The rich rule over the poor, says Proverbs, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. When we're in debt, we're in slavery to the lender. Say we buy a couch um, on credit for $1,000. So at the moment that we have the couch and we, on our, we put the $1,000 on our credit card, at that point, uh, the couch is worth $1,000, the debt is worth $1,000. Well, there's no debt because it's naught, because the debt's worth $1,000, uh, you know, the couch is worth $1,000. One week later, you've sat on the couch, your kids have, the dog sat on the couch, your kids have spilled drink over the couch. One week later, the couch is worth $800, but the debt is still $1,000. So at that point, we're in debt by $200. Within one week, we're in debt by $200. Now, is the company concerned about this? Because now the couch is only worth $800. You've got, with them, you owe them $1,000. Are they worried about that? Of course not. In fact, they like the idea because... If you get behind in your payments, they will charge you a penalty of 20%. If actually you fail to meet your payments, they will come and get the couch, which will only be worth $500 now. And because then they owe, are still owed $500, they'll come and take your fridge as well, as they have the right to do, uh, to reclaim that debt that you owe. Same goes with virtually any object, cars, computers, anything else. Because as soon as you take it away, it depreciates. So you're borrowing on something that is depreciating in value, aside from a house, which generally doesn't do that. Many New Zealanders are in a debt trap, and it's going to cause some grief because of what the Scripture says here, a desire for more. Maybe for some here, you need to chop up your credit card or stick it in the freezer, which means you can't use it too often. You see... The reality is the world is spending billions of dollars, literally, to convince us to go into debt. And it works. It's very successful. The Bible says this will actually cause you pain. Essentially what happens is when we go into debt uh, on depreciating objects, what we're doing is we're betting on the future. We're taking a bet on the future. And the bet is that I'll continue to have a job, uh, I won't fall over and break my hand, um, no emergencies will come our way. James says, James 4.13, says that that is the height of arrogance. We've got no idea what is around the corner. But no idea if tomorrow we'll get sick. Tomorrow we won't have a job. Because the bet is we'll continue to be healthy, we'll continue to have a job. In fact, we'll continue to have a well-paid job 
in order to pay off the debt, uh, the loan. Where does it come from? It comes, as it talks in these verses, from our longing for riches. So the first principle is the big picture. Second is the debt trap. The third principle is the faith test. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. can actually cause us to lose our faith. That's fairly blunt. Jesus said, actually, you can't serve both money and God. Now, it's not saying that money is evil. It's saying the love of money. If money becomes more central than God, then God is not central. You can't love both money and God. You have a choice. It's like the rich young ruler who wanted both. He wanted his love for money and everything else. And that, that's the lie that money says. Money says that the more money you have, actually you can have everything. It tries to deceive us. Jesus said you can't. You either put money first or God first. The parable of the sower and the seed, well-known parable. We often tell it uh, in relation to people coming to faith. But what are the weeds in the parable of the sower and the seed? The weeds are, it says, the cares of this world and the love of things, the things of this world. What does it say? It strangles. The cares of this world and the things of this world strangle, as weeds do, they strangle spirituality. I think it's one of the traps as we get older and we get more disposable income. Uh, you know, we can uh, suddenly become more interested in things rather than serving God. <laughs> Why are we not content? Why do we want more stuff? Why is that a struggle for us? And we could blame the culture that we live in. We certainly live in a very powerful culture um, that, as I say, advertisers spend billions of dollars to make us feel discontent with what we have. We feel discontent if we don't have the latest thing. Behind that discontentment are demonic forces, strongholds that are very powerful. But at a deeper level, I think that even the culture and the demonic strongholds, at the very deepest level, there is actually a desire to be significant. We want to know. Every person wants to know they're significant. Every person, I think, at some level, uh, struggles with a sense of inferiority. Uh, I certainly have. And we want to do something that will help us feel significant. We're told through advertising You'll be someone if you have the latest plasma TV. You'll be someone when you look like this. You'll be someone when others notice what car you drive. We try and find significance through money, uh, through sex, or through power, uh, but we try and find significance in some way. And this struggle for significance is totally unrelated to income. Wall Street Journal, uh, they did this... Um, Study. They interviewed top, uh, six top executives who earned between a hundred thousand and a million dollars. Okay, hundred thousand to a million. Interviewed the six executives, and one of the questions they asked was, "What is your greatest fear?" And each one, using slightly different language, answered the same way. Their greatest fear was that they would not have enough. They would not have enough. When they were asked how much is enough. They all said, 
a little bit more, a little bit more, in between 100,000 and a million dollars. They all said their greatest fear was not quite having enough. See, the search for significance uh, and the struggle, it's nothing to do with the size of our income, it's something deeply profound within us. And our significance can only come as we know that we're loved by God and as we choose to be one of his children. It's beautiful in Psalm 139, it says that the thoughts about God towards us are more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach. The thoughts of God towards us are more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach. We can say that we're Christians, but if we're searching for our significance in stuff, then maybe we have to question our faith. Maybe a level of debt is an indicator of where we're searching. There's all kinds of great uh, practical advice on dealing with money. You've got uh, Michelle here who works for Jubilee Finance. Uh, there's great articles on the net, um, sorted.co. Uh, there's great articles about practically sorting out our money. But it won't, and I'm, I fully endorse those and recommend them. Budgets and practical things about reducing debt and whatnot, but they don't deal with the heart issue of our compulsion to spend more and our desire for significance. And you won't find that in any uh, financial book. You only find the answers to that in Jesus Christ. You can be poor by this world's standards, and yet content if you know that you're a child of God. So we come to commune this morning. It's a celebration of the love of God. A celebration of how much we are loved by God. As we come to commune this morning, I encourage you to reflect on that. That Jesus, in the Last Supper, last time he was with his disciples, said, when you eat bread, remember. Remember what I'm about to do. Remember this is my body that's being uh, broken for you. Remember this. And after that eating, he took the cup and he said, you know, this drink's symbolic of a new covenant, a new relationship new intimacy that we can know with God. As we come to commune this morning, as we reflect on how much we're loved by God, as we reflect on what God has done for us, I'm going to do something that uh, I've not done before, uh, and it's slightly risky. (laughs) Um, And I can't actually follow um, what I'm going to say, because I forgot to do this. Um, I've got a taxi here. But what I'm going to do is, is encourage you to do as you come forward to the community, is I'm going to encourage you to leave your wallet or your handbag at the cross. Now, as I say, I left my wallet at home. That was convenient. Uh, <laughs> I didn't drive. Um, symbolic of the fact that uh, we're recognising that everything we have comes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, there's two risks in this proposal. The first risk is that actually, uh, and then once you've left it there, you come and take communion and go back to your seat. Uh, The first risk in this proposal is that actually God might challenge you about your finances. 
that actually it might be more than symbolic <laughs> about leaving it there. Um, the second risk is that you don't get your wallet back. <laughs> uh, and um, so to counter that risk that uh, you don't get your wallet back, I'm going to ask that you don't leave before everyone gets their wallet back, <laughs> the right wallet back, so, um, so we don't all swap wallets or um, whatever. Okay? <laughs> I think, well, that one's nice. It might have more in it. Um, so is that okay? So I... After the service, will be a mad rush up here. It'll be, be an exercise about how long you can sit in your seat before you go and click your wallet so, or your handbag. Um, so, but I encourage you as you come forward for communion to reflect on how much uh, you are loved by God, how much God has done for you. Let's pray. And I'll just ask the communion stewards to come to the front. But we confess that often we search for significance, for meaning in other things other than you. God, I pray this morning you've got to lay down Everything that we turn to with significance. And God, we would better truly know what it is to be embraced by you. God, I ask that as we eat this bread and drink this drink, that you'd meet us in the deep places of our heart we would know just how much we're loved by you. We would come into that place of intimacy that those prophetic words that were brought this morning talked about. We'd come into that place of contentment in you. True contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.